0: Today's scripture um, comes from Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field where you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is the reading of God's word.
1: Oh, thank you uh, for the birthday wishes. Um, yeah, I don't really, um, I don't really like uh, to be publicly acknowledged for a birthday, uh, because there's so many birthdays to remember, especially this time of year, and um, I just always feel... Um, unnecessary, but nevertheless, thank you anyways. Um, today is a special day because we are actually taking a break from our ministry Sunday to do a couple of things. We've got a lot to do today. Um, we've got a new membership to induct. We also have a baptism service today, and uh, we have communion. And, and so uh, we're taking a break from our normal schedule things to um, celebrate these things. And in light of that, I decided to look at this passage that Lisa just read for us from Ezekiel chapter 16. And if you're listening to the passage here, um, it's pretty intense, right? It's pretty graphic, the scene here that Ezekiel pictures of God and his relationship with his people, Israel. You might be wondering why we're looking at this passage. And the reason is because this passage provides us a window, a, a picture, a graphic one Uh, of how God deals with his people, what he sees, what he does with them. And since today we observe uh, not only a new member, but also a baptism, um, I don't know, after this sermon, those of us who are members, um, those of us who are going through membership or thinking about it, you might rethink your membership. And also for those of us who have been baptized, um, this is a reminder to take your membership and to take your baptism seriously. Because... What's the, what's the one thing that's common between a church membership and a baptism? What's the one thing? It's this idea of commitment. When you become a member, you're making a commitment. And baptism, in a broader and general way, you're also making a kind of commitment, right? It's commitment. And that's what we're looking at here in Ezekiel chapter 16. Did you know in the year 2016, um, the New York Times had an opinion article that was actually the most read article that year in that paper. And the topic of the article, it, it, it wasn't a politics, it, it wasn't some current issue or some pop culture idea, it wasn't technology, finance, or anything else. The most read article in 2016, the topic, guess what it was about? About commitment. The most read article in the New York Times in 2016 was about commitment, and particularly the kind of commitment involved in marriage. Marriage. Uh, in this article, the author, Alan de he he gives, this, he gives a very realistic, um, if not a little pessimistic opinion of our culture's idea of commitment, particularly in the relationship of marriage. And the title of his article was this, quote, why you will marry the wrong person, end quote. And he opens up by this, and he says this. He says, it's one of the things that we are most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person, end quote. And his basic thesis in that article was that in our current culture, uh, when we think about relationships, especially marriage, we see commitment in marriage initially based, even primarily based on what we call romantic affection. And when we say romantic affection, we're not talking about just lovey-dovey kind of feelings, but ro- romantic affection means this feeling of compatibility with someone, the feeling that we we belong together, someone that we're with, that we feel will fulfill our needs, that will make us happy. And so, the in his article says, Basically, we've romanticized our commitments in marriage. Listen to what he says. He says this, people have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close together. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date should be, how crazy are you? Marriage ends up as a hopeful, generous, infinitely kind of gamble taken by two people who don't yet know who they are or who the other might be, binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully avoided investigating. Finally, he says, we marry to make a nice feeling permanent. We imagine that marriage will help us to bottle the joy we felt when the thought of proposing first came to us. We marry to make sensations permanent, DeBotten says, but fail to see that there is really no solid connection between feelings and the institution of marriage, end quote. De not a Christian, but he's putting out his opinion. And it's maybe it's somewhat kind of a pessimistic view of people, but he basically says this, that all married people will eventually find inadequacies so great in their spouse that it will make them ask the question, did I marry the wrong person? And as a result in our culture today, too easy to get separated, too rampant of a divorce. And let's be honest, maybe those of you who are married or in a relationship, maybe even in our own church, maybe you've asked yourself that question before. Did I marry the wrong person? So, what's Debotton's solution? He says this. He says, We've got to swap this romantic view of, of relationship for a tragic view. The awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. The awareness that we will do the same to them. And there may be no end to our sense of emptiness and completeness, but Debotton says, none of this. Is unusual or grounds for divorce. That's just how people are. This is his solution. He offers a more practical way to commit to a relationship. He says this choosing whom to commit yourself to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering that you would like to sacrifice yourself for. That's what he says. If you want to know who you should commit to, you simply need to identify how crazy the person is and what kind of crazy you're willing to commit to. I don't know, it's kind of pessimistic, but it's not too far off from what the Bible shows us because in the Bible, especially in our passage, this idea is really nothing new. In fact, the Bible takes it one step further. Because when you read the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, the idea of marriage and the image of marriage is frequently used to describe God and his relationship with Israel, his people. And this is what you see here in our passage in Ezekiel 16. This is what he says in verse eight. When I passed by you and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love. I spread the corner of my garment over you, covered your nakedness, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You know, this image, he says, spread the corner of my garment over you. That's a symbolism for an act of representing the claiming of a maiden in marriage. You see the same words in the book of Ruth. When Ruth found her husband, Boaz, Boaz did the same thing. He spread the corner of his garment over her. It's marriage. It's a marriage image. God describes his relationship with Israel as a marriage. He's the bridegroom, and Israel is his bride. But here's the difference between God's marriage and ours. The difference is God already knows what kind of spouse he's marrying. He knows her every fault. He knows her every weakness. He knows her every sin. This is to the way that God describes his bride, Israel. Verse 2 in our passage, make known to her her abominations, right? Verse 3, he says, your origins and your birth from the land of Canaanites. You know, Israelites hated the Canaanites. That's where she was born. Verse 5, he says, no eye pitied you. Right? No one did anything out of compassion for you. You were just cast out. You were abhorred, abhorred on the day you were born. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But I don't think this is God's opinion. This is people's opinion of the nation of Israel. Israel is described in our passage as someone who had a poor family background, Someone who was not attractive in any way in the eyes of the world, right? Someone who nobody wanted. In fact, someone who was despised in the eyes of others. And if you were to keep reading this passage, you would see this is Israel, someone who was always wandering off, someone who was always wayward, someone who was always sleeping with other people. Israel as a nation is described as an unfaithful, spouse. And the question you should be asking is this, why? Why would God commit to that? I mean, let's let's put ourselves out of this God thing for a minute and put ourselves in reality. I've done a lot of uh, premarital counseling, and more than a few times after marriage, some years later, I've done marriage counseling. And you'd be surprised how many people have said, quote, I would never have gotten married if I knew it was going to be like this. I would never have gotten married if I knew it was going to be like this. If you knew before you got married what it might be like, the craziest thing, you know what you would do. You would never make that commitment. Nobody would. Right? Then why should God continue to be faithful to Israel knowing not only how you know what what her issues are but what she will do in the future to him why should God stay in this relationship with his people if anyone right should be asking did I marry the wrong person it should have been God himself why didn't he just start over all oh, this People, Israel, they're always worshiping other things. They're always like hanging out with other people, and and rather than me, they're always doing the wrong thing. Why didn't he just start over, get a divorce, declare irreconcilable differences, right? We're just not compatible. I'm holy, you're not, and just look for someone better. And the answer in our passage is clear. Verse 8 he says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine the reason why god is what he is and how he is and what he does with israel no matter what israel is is because god says not because of you but because of me i made a promise I made a vow, a commitment. And this is what he says, a covenant commitment. A covenant is simply a contract promise between two people or parties, and he made a promise to Israel that he, the God of promise, will keep his promise to Israel to be to her God, Through thick or thin, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, he will be to her faithful. I made the vow. that's a crazy, crazy idea today, believe it or not. Especially if you knew everything about your person that you're going to marry and every terrible thing that might happen. But the reason why God roots his relationship and all our relationships in the world in what he calls covenantal promises is because in the Bible, the nature of covenants were meant to endure. Tim Keller in his book on marriage says this, covenants, right, are by their nature oriented towards the future. They are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually Binding promise of future love. You hear what it means? When you make a covenant promise and you make your vows, you are not just saying, I promise to love you now. You're promising to love the person in the future. It's a very realistic idea because it assumes you're going to have rough patches. There are going to be difficult moments, hard things that might happen in your relationship. This is why when we do a wedding and we make these vows and we say things like, for better or for worse, it doesn't mean in the moment. It's a promise to be faithful in the future. It's a covenant promise. No one says, and I've never had anyone say that day on their marriage or their wedding at the altar, no one's ever said, I know this is going to get bad in five years, but I think I'm ready because she looks pretty now. He looks good cute now. No one ever says that. The promise of faithfulness even during the worst. And the problem for people is this. We never think about the worst in those moments. We never expect how worse it could be. But that's what vows are. Covenant promises. Not just to love you now, but to love you later, even in the worst of moments, by enduring the inevitable rough patches of the future. And this is why Christian marriage isn't just some hopeful promise between two consenting adults who are romantically involved and just hope to make it to the next few years. Marriage is a covenant commitment between two adults and God himself. I made my vow to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. And so where a typical person, the average person, might reject, despise, even hate an unfaithful partner, God, even though by certain standards, he knows he married the wrong kind of people, says, you are mine. You are mine. Now, how does God make such a promise to be faithful in the future? How does God do this? Well, you remember the New York Times article on de solution. He says, basically, you have to choose someone to commit to by simply identifying which variety of suffering you will sacrifice yourself for. And if that's true, then God promises to be faithful to Israel in the future. How? Because he's chosen to endure suffering by sacrificing himself on a cross for his wife her issues, her weaknesses, her unfaithfulness, her sins, past, present, and future, and for ours. That's his covenant commitment. God didn't just tell us what covenant faithfulness is, he showed it to us. In his son, Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, as Ephesians 5 says, he endures the suffering, gives his life for his bride, the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And on that cross, Jesus teaches us what it means to be committed to the end, what it takes to love someone completely, a complete self-giving, a complete giving of grace and the recognition of the forgiveness of our sins. Here's what I want you to know. You might be unsure of some people's faithfulness to you, or you might be unsure of your faithfulness to others for that matter. But when you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, may you never forget God's enduring covenant faithfulness to you. I made my vows to you, and you became mine. Okay. Now, what does this have to do with church membership and baptism? Here's what maybe you have heard or should know. You don't date the local church. You marry it. You marry it. And there's a reason for that. Because church membership and baptism are covenant commitments. When the Bible speaks about the church, guess what it speaks it as? It speaks of it as a covenant community. Joining a church is not the same as joining a club. It's not a gym membership where you kind of just sign up, but you really never go. When you make a commitment to your church and to the Lord, you are covenanted to Him, and we are covenanted to one another. This is why we ask them. This is why we do this. When we belong to a church, we submit to the leaders of the church, Matthew 18. We promise to gather together to worship, Hebrews chapter 10. We bear with one another's burdens and sorrows, Galatians chapter 6. We encourage one another, Hebrews chapter 3. We pray for one another, James chapter 5. And we are called to forgive one another, Colossians 3. We give grace, we forgive sins because we belong to the same body, bride, church of Jesus Christ. When we are baptized, we are baptized into the covenant family of God, the church. We are baptized to promise to God to love him and to love his church, not just right now, but in the future just like a marriage covenant. Now let's be real. Like many marriages, many friendships, many relationships, there's that honeymoon stage, right? And you go to your first church or the church that you're visiting and it says, oh, the people seem friendly. The only people in our church that thinks our church is not so friendly are long-term members. I don't know Why? Every new member, every new visitor that I've spoken to, I've said, we are so friendly. The only people is our church. There's something to say about that. But, you know, you go to the church, that's the honeymoon stage. But just like many of our relationships and our friendships and and even our marriages, when the honeymoon stage is over, and you begin to see a little bit more clearly some of the issues of the people around you, wait wait a minute, those people aren't really that nice. Wait a minute, there, there, there's just too many cliques and groups. They're, they're, they're kind of exclusive. They're not inclusive. Wait, wait, this group, they're, they're kind of they're too liberal for me or they're too conservative for me. Wait a minute, you know what? I've been going to this church. The sermons are kind of boring now. They don't really do anything for me. The praise, it's whatever. The community groups don't seem to meet my needs the way I thought it would. Wait a minute, I've been going to the church for so long, I can't seem to connect with anyone. Everyone in this group, except for me, is just really weird. You stick around long enough to any group. Wait a minute, they're gossiping about me. They've wronged me. They've hurt me. They've disappointed me. And just like our relationships, we are reminded that no one is perfect and no church is perfect, but we still, we, we can't help it. If in our marriages we ever ask, did I marry the wrong person, then so too in our membership, we might also ask, did I join the wrong church? Do you know the number one reason people leave the church? It's not because they disagree with the teaching, or they just can't get into the praise time, or that the Bible studies are fluffy. Those might be somewhat better reasons. One author puts it this way, Christians are leaving their churches for the same reason people leave their marriages. We're just incompatible, irreconcilable differences. People leave the church because of community and we've already talked about that before right fellowship community it is important it's so important but as important as it is if that's your reason for leaving the church let me ask you if you're a member where is your covenant promise it's not community first it's covenant first before your community Because just like marriage covenants, membership covenants, to borrow Keller's words, are just not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. Trusting in God to endure what God already knows that people aren't that great all the time, that the honeymoon stage can be quickly over that there's going to be rough patches in every relationship, and they start coming through. That's when you remember what? God's faithfulness to the church, not yours. His promises to the church, not yours. And then you remember your promises to the church. For richer, or for poor, sickness or in health, for better or for worse, you, we, are together for better or for worse. The wrong kind of people together because of the church, because of what God has done His love and His faithfulness to her. Okay? Now, I know if you're new to church or if you're, you're not sure what Christianity is about and you're visiting, you know, this might be strange, but here, in my book, We got it backwards. We leave and have problems for all other things. You forget why you're here. You forget why you're here. You're not here to find your best bud. You're not here to find your your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse. You're not here to uh, kill time and enjoy with people you like. Ultimately, somewhere, those are all important. Those are all great things that we find along the way. But ultimately, you're here because you worship this God, and this God loves you. You feel incompatible? Of course you're supposed to feel incompatible. That's what happens when God brings different kind of people with different personalities together. Listen to what what the non-Christian de says in his article. This is amazing. He says this in his article, quote, Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be a precondition of love, end quote. Did you hear that? Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be a precondition. Another pastor uh, wrote it this way. He says this, quote, The world argues affection is a prerequisite to commitment. But the biblical picture is actually quite the opposite. Commitment and service... Create affection. It's reversed. Community didn't create covenant. Covenant promises created the community. Community is important. Relationships are certainly important. But ultimately, we do not let people or relational issues, we try so hard not to let that be the reason. I would rather you leave the church, if you ever do, other than relocating because of work, you come to me and say, Pastor Francis, I disagree with your theology. I think it's wrong. I think that's a good reason. But if you ever leave because you're not getting along with a member of the church, that, to me, I understand, but it's not the reason. It isn't. Because that's not the reason you came to church in the first place. It shouldn't be. Rather, let your covenant, commitment, promise precede everything else. You look at the cross. You learn to endure some people. You learn to show grace to other people. You pray for forgiveness for some people and you let your faith work itself out where it is in the community you are right now. By loving those around you, serving, giving, praying, encouraging, that's how community is built. And if you're always asking what I'm getting out of this or what I'm not getting out of this, I don't know, maybe you're a consumerist, but you're not a covenant member. Okay? Now, Let me just, for the record, say this. There are legitimate reasons to leave a covenant community, and there's a right way to do it. But let me just say, anyone who leaves, it's always sad. It's always sad. And and as a congregation like ours, which is weak, flawed, small, let me just say this. All of us have a responsibility to do everything we can to include, to involve, to encourage those who feel estranged, It's not just the pastor, you have a part too. To be patient, if not to enjoy them, at least to bear with them, with humility, gentleness, and love, like Ephesians 4 says. That's on us as a community. That's a community that sometimes the wrong people are brought together for the right reasons, but we do this because God is faithful to love you and to love them, and our commitment to him and to us and to the church needs to reflect that. Let me just end with this. I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I really feel love for the church, and a lot of times I don't feel anything, okay, because it's work. But eventually, every congregation, no matter where it is, will find a way to get under your skin. It will frustrate you, may even wound you, and you might do the same to them. But Let me just encourage you with this last quote from... I forget who it is, but he says this, quote, Our relationships will ebb and flow, as will our affection for the church, but the solution is not always looking for a better fit. Instead, we renew our passion, we reignite our sense of belonging by holding ourselves to our membership covenant, sacred promises that bind even the wrong kind of people together, end quote. And so as we observe not only new membership, but also a new baptism, I pray that you are reminded of the vows that you made or will make one day when you become part of a local church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much that you are a God who, who loves us in an amazing way, a way that many of us can't relate with. Uh, And if we would only understand that and see that a little bit more, we pray that that would be reflected in what we see in others and how we see others as we come as the community of Christ. We pray that, Lord, we continue to work and do more and be better in our fellowship, to deepen, to strengthen, to grow it. But we also pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your faithfulness to us, the promises you've made to us, and the promises that we've made to you. We ask for the grace and the strength to be faithful to those things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.